Well, in Matthew chapter 12, it, it sounds like a reasonable request. Some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered Jesus saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And you might wonder, well, what's the big deal about that? Jesus has been going around doing all kinds of miracles, performing all kinds of signs. What is so unreasonable about this request? What is such the big deal that Jesus then goes from verse 38 of Matthew 13, or Matthew 12 all the way to the end of the chapter? This is a very lengthy answer to what these scribes and Pharisees say. Why not just perform a sign? Hey, teacher, we, we, if you just did a sign, everything would be great. Well, why not do that? Why does Jesus give the answer that he gives and why such a lengthy answer in regards to that? Now, it is important to note as you look at verse 38, that this is not a new topic. This is not a new paragraph. In fact, the ESV with a handful of other translations Show this because it says the scribes and the Pharisees answered him. This is not a new location, not new geography, new paragraph. They are answering Jesus. Now, what are they answering? Well, you might remember that earlier in chapter 12, Jesus has healed a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute. And remember that the people then, when they see that happen, they begin to question, maybe this Jesus is the son of David. Maybe he is the Christ. But do you remember what the Pharisees responded? They said, oh no, he's definitely not from God. He is casting out demons by the power of Satan. To which Jesus goes on a long explanation as to why that is utterly ridiculous. And the message that we talked about last week is that fruit says something. And Jesus' fruit was saying something, that he was the Messiah, that he had brought the kingdom, that he was dealing with Satan, binding the strong men, casting him out, and showing the power of the forgiveness of sins. And this now is the scribes and the Pharisees' answer. They are now responding back. Jesus has said, you got it all wrong. Clearly, I am from God. Look at what I'm doing. And now this is their response. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, I want you to think about what Jesus does with this and what Jesus says to this. And I want you to even think a moment about what has happened. Do you consider how strange it is? That they come to Jesus now and their answer is, we want to see a sign. What just happened? <laughs> he had just healed a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute. And now they say, we want to see a sign. It's a good thing that Jesus is not a smart aleck because if that's me. I go, what was that? <laughs> what? Look at this man right here. I, I just did one for you. Jesus is performing all kinds of miracles and signs, and he had just done one in that moment. And this was a sign that was significant to show who he was. And this is why Jesus gives the answer in verse 39, when he says, an evil and an adulterous generation seeks for a sign. 
Now that's a really important response that Jesus gives. An evil and an adulterous generation seeks a sign. Now, it is important that we underscore the problem is not people desiring verifiable proof. If that was the problem, then why is Jesus doing miracles? Why will the apostles go around doing miracles? Obviously, the intent of the miracle is verifiable proof to prove who I am, to prove what I'm teaching, to prove the message that I'm giving to you. Jesus' answer is not to say, you should just believe because I say so. That's not what he's doing. He's not saying that that an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign because you shouldn't have verifiable proof. Jesus is giving the verifiable proof. He had just done it. What is Jesus saying? The problem is, They're telling Jesus, we don't really like that one. Give us another. Yeah, I know you just did that one. That's not sufficient. I would like to see another one. I would like for you to give me another sign. Give me something that works for me. Give me something that I want to see. Which I would like for you to think about for a moment. Imagine if verse 39 said... And Jesus did another miracle. Do you think verse 40 would say, and then the scribes and the Pharisees bowed down and worshiped him as God? You know, that's not the problem. (laughs) Verifiable proof is not the problem. And that's what Jesus is pushing through right here. He's going, it's not that you really need some kind of evidence. The problem is you have this evil heart that says, God should meet me on my terms. Give me another sign. Show me something else. Do something more. Support my faith by doing another one. Do another one. Do another one. And Jesus is saying, that's an evil heart. That's a wicked heart that comes to God and says, you need to prove yourself to me. Who's becoming God in that moment? Right here. I'm telling God, you serve me. I'm on the throne, you prove yourself. And Jesus is going, no, that doesn't work like that. I've given you the verifiable proof. An evil heart comes to me and says, that's not enough. And I want you to think about that response for a minute. Do you think that still happens today? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, the same mentality still happens today to say to Jesus, well, that's not enough. In fact, it is, I think, fascinating to think about. I think the the higher intellectual level of our world is to go around saying, well, I just need more evidence. And if God just did. And I want you to see that's exactly what these guys are saying. Oh, I just want you to do some more things. Just, just show me something else. Just do something more. And it sounds really high and mighty and pious and, and, and culturally thoughtful to walk around telling everybody, yeah, well, I just need more evidence. You know, I am just so elevated and so smart and so intellectual and so up there that, you know, for, for, my, you, know, for you, got, you peons down there, those, those things are enough for you to believe. But, you know, I am up here. And God needs to show me something up here. That is an evil heart. 
That's what Jesus is saying. Because it's not a sign. That's the problem. And for all the people that say that or write books about that, you could ask and answer the same question. Do you think if they received some particular sign, that would do it? You know, it's not. And that's what Jesus is putting his finger on in the minute, at this moment, that he is reading their hearts and he is saying evidence is not the problem. An evil heart says God must meet me on my terms. God must do what I want him to do. God must do something for me. And Jesus says, uh, I'm not here as your puppet. I'm, I'm not your entertainment show to do whatever you ask of me. I've proven myself. In fact, you will notice what he says in verse 39 is going to be the pivotal sign. Verse 39, he says, here's the sign that you're going to have. You are going to have the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he explains what he means by that in verse 40. Just as Jonah was in the belly of a great fish for three days and three nights, so also the Son of Man, speaking of himself, I'm going to be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. He says, here's the big sign. This is going to be the ultimate pivotal sign. My resurrection, or to be more precise, my predicted resurrection. He is going to begin to predict his death. He predicts how long he will be dead. And then he predicts when he will come back to life three days later. And he says, that's going to be the sign. That's going to be the sign that you need. And I want to underscore that. Resurrection is the sign for faith. I want us to never lose sight of this. Our faith rests exclusively on the resurrection of Jesus. That's where it sits. That's where the the battle line is. And everyone has to come to terms with the resurrection of Jesus. What is your answer to an empty tomb? What is your answer to the opponents who do not go around saying, oh no, the disciples are lying. We have the body right here. Let me show you. An empty tomb must be dealt with. And our faith rests on that. And that's what Jesus is saying. There is going to be one sign for the world, one sign for all time, one sign for faith. And that sign is the resurrection of Jesus. So strong is that sign that if the resurrection does not generate belief, nothing will. And that's why he can say what he says. I don't need to do any more signs. I'm going to give you one big one. And notice he words it that he is giving it to this generation. This is going to be what you need. This is the thing to break through unbelief. Resurrection from the dead should break through unbelief. That's that's the game changer. What more are you going to do? How much bigger of a sign do you need? What greater accomplishment can someone do except predict their death and then bring themselves back to life again and go, see, I told you. That's the basis of faith. And that's what Jesus is doing here. In this moment, in fact, 
This message is so strong. You will notice that Jesus now makes a criticism of these scribes and Pharisees in verses 41 and 42. He says in verse 41 that the the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Imagine that. All the people of Nineveh go, you guys were crazy and wrong. (laughs) Now, I want you to take note of Nineveh. Nineveh's capital of the Assyrian Empire back in the days of Jonah. The Assyrian Empire was a wicked, ferocious, violent, awful empire. And Jesus says, less signs were given to them and they repented. And here I come, something greater is here, and you're not repenting. Here's the implication. What does that say about you? (laughs) If wicked Gentiles will listen to the proclamation of God and repent, then you, with all the signs that have been given, by the way, you'll almost imagine the demon-oppressed man who's been healed just standing right there, you know, exhibit A, with the signs right in front of you, will not repent. And he does the same thing in verse 42, the queen of the south. When she hears of the wisdom of Solomon, she comes from the ends of the earth. She understands the need to come to Solomon because of who he is and the wisdom that God has given him. And he says, here I am among you and you won't come to me. And something greater than Solomon is here. So it's quite a condemnation to zero in and say, the problem is ultimately your heart. Something greater Then Jonah and something greater than Solomon is here. And what more do you want Jesus to do? And what more do you truly think would be enough? I want you to see something here in the text. Doesn't it seem that verses 43 through 47, verse 45, are completely out of place? Just listen now. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through watery places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So it will be with this evil generation. I have to imagine if I was sitting there, I would go... Where'd we go? You were just talking about signs and you were saying how they have an evil heart and no other sign is going to be given to them than your resurrection. And now you start talking about unclean spirits. What is going on? But I want you to notice that, again, there's not a new paragraph. There's not he left and started talking about something random about unclean spirits. He's still talking to this audience. He's still speaking to them. He's still teaching them. And I want you to see that what Jesus says about unclean spirits is an illustration. You will notice that idea because at the end of verse 45, he says, so it will be with this evil generation. This is illustrating them. He just told a story about them. Now, it's a strange one because he's talking about casting out unclean spirits and then them coming back. But he's talking about them. And the illustration is, is really quite simple. He's illustrating a person who has experienced this great act of God. 
casting out unclean spirits. But then, with the emptiness of his heart, there's no response. There's no activity. And so ultimately, the picture is that the outcome is worse than when he started. Now, what is Jesus trying to explain with all of that? Well, one, I want you to get a sense that this was representing Israel's problem. Think about what we have learned in our studies of the people of Israel as recorded by the prophets in the Hebrew scriptures. You you learn of a people who they have been put into exile because of their idolatry, because of their sins, because of their wickedness. Those sins have been purged. They've been cleansed. They've been brought back into the land. But nothing's any better. It is a fascinating thing to read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and to read about the prophets Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And you would think, after going through a purging like they did, being sent into exile, dealing with the punishment, being purged of those sins, and now saying, okay, be my holy people and come back on the land. And you might remember what is happening. Haggai, he walks onto the scene and says, why aren't you building my temple? You guys are more interested in building your houses. You seem to be far more interested in your own personal things rather than the house of God. And Haggai's walking around saying, that's why you're not blessed is because you're lacking the heart. Even though the sins have been purged and you're back on the land, The heart hasn't been changed in the slightest. In fact, so true was that. You might remember Malachi's prophecy. That the people are coming to worship. And they're saying as they bring their offerings and bring their sacrifices and they come into the temple. Boy, this is a weariness. Oh, what a pain to have to be here and do this. Have to bring our sacrifices and have to... Do these acts of worship. It's just unbelievable that God has us do this. This is the illustration that is being given here is this is the nature of these people. You have purged some of these moral wrongs, but where is the new heart? Where is the new love? Where is the new devotion? In fact, the reason why this is such a picture of things being worse is because now they are in a place of self-deception. Here's what I mean by that. They think because they are no longer doing certain sins of the past, they're so much closer to God. Well, we don't do those terrible things. So we're good. And the illustration of the unclean spirit is, but your heart is empty. Yeah, you've cut out some things, but where is the new heart? Where is the renewed devotion? Where is the love of God? Where is the seeking him with all of your heart? Where is the very thing that was commanded from the start to love the Lord your God with all of your heart? Yeah, you stopped doing a few things. Terrific. But now you're just self-deceived. And I want you to think about that idea just for a minute. Because that's an easy self-deception. 
Well, I'm not as bad as my neighbors because I don't do duh, duh, duh. I've got these sins I don't do. And so because I don't do certain sins, I must be close to God. No, you're not. That's not the measure. God's gospel command was not, would you please just stop doing some sins? I beg of you. But how often is it boiled down to that? I'll never forget one Christian not here before I came here. We were talking about doing something in service to God. And his response was, I come to church every week. What more do you want? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. But the command of God was not sit here in a pew for an hour. The command of God was not just don't be as sexually deviant as the rest of the world. The command of God was not just simply don't be a liar like them or just don't be as awful as them or don't go places they go. And you might grow up in the pews and that's probably all you ever heard, maybe. That's not doing what God said. And that's what he's driving at with them. You've gone through this purging. You've gone through this great act where God has, has brought a cleansing to you. But you didn't replace it with the love of God. You just stopped a few things. Okay, fine, glad. Good, good for you that you stopped doing a few things. But that's not what the picture was. You're loving the Lord your God with all of your heart. Have you replaced it with a devotion for him? And that's what Jesus is observing with them. That's what this evil generation is. He's describing. Why do you have an evil heart? Because you think you're so close to God because you don't sin like everybody else. And that ain't the test. It's not the test at all. And unfortunately, sometimes we can be these hollow shells before God. That's what he's describing here, this hollow individual in a metaphoric way. The evil spirits are gone. But there's not a heart that's filled with a pressing desire and devotion for God. And so the outcome is it's going to be worse than before. Because you think you're doing so much better. But you're missing the big E on the eye chart. About a devotion and a love and a knowledge of your God. Now you might notice verse 46 also seems to be a turn, hard turn at right field there. And all of a sudden jerking again. Notice there's an interesting interruption that happens at this moment. While Jesus is still speaking, we're told, you have a messenger come to Jesus and say, uh, your mother and your brothers want to talk to you. Now, we're not sure why. John's account might help us a little bit. You might remember John's account, they think that Jesus is crazy, might be a little bit strong, but... 
not doing well and that he needs to stop what he's doing. They try to prevent him on a number of occasions. And that might be what's happening here. They're coming to him and going, hey, uh, ease it up a little bit. I want you to notice Jesus' answer because it is an amazing answer that happens. First, he asks the question in verse 48, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Now, if you were standing in the crowd, what would you have done? They're over there. They just they just sent somebody in here to ask you to go over there because they would like to pull you away and, and talk to you. And Jesus goes, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And then just visualize with this crowd. He then spreads his hands out and says, you are. You're my family. You're my brothers and sisters. You're my parents. You're my children. All of you are my family. Now, has he gone out of the way here again? Has he just shifted? Is Matthew just throwing random things together? I, I don't think so. I think, again, we are talking something very important about the mentality that these people would have had. And he's asking this important question, who ultimately belongs to God's family? To that audience, and you asked who belonged to God's family, their answer would be bloodlines, genealogy. This was one of the important problems that John the Baptizer and Jesus and the apostles are dealing with. We're God's family because we can trace ourselves back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we're the people of God. And Jesus says, no, guess who's God's family? It's not bloodlines. And he's illustrating it with his own family. Who's my mother and who are my brothers and sisters? It's not that. But what Jesus is doing is showing that a new family is not going to be created through physical blood bound by Abraham. But a new family would be bound by the blood of Jesus. What you have here is such an interesting ending to say what I've come to do for those who will have a heart or to use the words that he says there in verse verse 50. Whoever does the will of my father to those who have that heart, who will listen to me, who will fill their lives with a devotion for God and purging out the sin. Yes, but refill that void with a love and a seeking desire for God with all of your heart, who will do my will, he says, you now will be my family. And we need to see each other that way. Friends, we are not a bunch of people who we have to tolerate for an hour once a week. This is not a club. You are not baptized into a church that now you got to deal with some people. That's not what baptism represents. And that's not the message of what God's trying to offer to us. This is not a club. This is not a hobby. This is not some kind of, okay, when I've got all of my other issues and concerns and appointments and schedules dealt with, I know I've got these other people that I have to tend to and spin that plate every once in a while. I want you to think about us together as a new real family 
with all that that means in terms of connection, responsibility, and accountability. One other, this struck me at a really, because we're at an interesting time of year. This is the one in seven year moment when Christmas falls on Sunday. And it's been really interesting to listen to different people that I listen to and, and listen to sermons and whatever. People will talk about, yeah, but with Christmas, I want to be with family. I hope you do. Jesus says, who's my family? And it's a crying shame that we don't see ourselves as that. We are see ourselves as some Costco club membership that we see every once in a while and we're united by this one little thing rather than being united by the deep blood of Christ. We're supposed to be that family, not the alternative, not I need to spend time with my family. You don't have a family. We're the family. That's what Jesus just said. He just said about his mother. Who's his mother? Mary. Who's my mother? He goes, you are. Do we have that kind of intensity about how we look at each other? I crack up. Oh, I just need to be with family. Yeah. We're right here. We're right here. You do need family. You need family deeply. And I encourage you to become deeply connected to this family. I'll say this about this church, because I've been a part of a few before being here. This is a weird church. Here's what I mean by that. You can get as deeply connected, as invested as you want to be here. I've been at other churches where that's not true. You can try all day long to break into circles and clubs and groups and all that. You'll never break in. You will always be over there. You'll always be held at arm's length. I went through that so many times. You're you're just over there. We're glad you're here, but you're over there. That's not to be true here. That doesn't happen here. You can be a part of this group as much as you want to be, and it's completely on you how much you engage, how much you want to give yourself, how much you want to be a part of it. If you want a real family, it's possible here. I'm telling you that. It's possible here. But you have to want it. You've got to give yourselves to it. You've got to connect. But this is an amazing family. And it's what Jesus is calling for, that we would have that mentality. All right, let's end by pulling all three of these together because they're not completely disconnected. Number one, here's Jesus starting out. Don't reject because you think God's got to do something in particular for you. Be careful about your prayers. God, if you would just do an evil generation says, I demand a sign that you got to do something for me. Don't have a heart toward God that says what God has to do for me. That is a heart of rejection, which is what he illustrates with the unclean spirit scene. Please do not experience the cleansing that is happening in Christ and then not fill that void. 
Too often the Christian message is stop sinning. True, but not a complete sentence. Stop. Purge. Cleanse. But you have to replace it. Replace the love of sin with the love of God. Replace the activities of the world with spiritual activities. You must fill the void. Otherwise, seven worse things are coming for you, is what he illustrates. You're going to fill it with even worse things. We are just not voidless vacuums that wander around. We're going to do things. And Jesus is illustrating that. Don't let the great salvation and cleansing of God go for nothing on you. Fill it with the love of God. Be devoted. Seek him with all of your heart. Get to know who he is. Love him and come to know him deeply. Because guess what's happening when you come to know him deeply? You are not just coming to a church. Long time ago, I did a series. Don't go to church. Be the church. That was a fun series. Maybe I should resurrect that and don't do it again. Don't go to church. That's not what we're doing here. You don't go to church. You are the church. You are the family. You don't go. We never said, I'm going to go go to family. We're not going to family. We are the family. And you belong to an eternal family. Here's why it matters. One billion years from now, we're all still going to see each other. You thought about that? We're going to be hanging out for trillions of years. (laughs) I might as well get to know you now. (laughs) We're going to have plenty of time together. We have a great family. You're coming to something amazing. That God has created through his son's blood. And what a wonderful thing. To have a heart that will receive it. And not reject. What God is trying to give you. To cleanse you, renew you, and fill you with life and love that comes from Jesus Christ. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we thank you so much for your son's teaching here. Lord, forgive us for when we have placed ourselves as God, telling you what you must do for us. Forgive us for when we have been demanding of you that we have placed requirements upon you about our lives. And Lord, I pray that we would see what you were doing in our lives. Lord, purge us from sins. Cleanse us from evil. Deeply clean our hearts and minds. And Lord, strengthen us and encourage us and push us to fill the void of our lives with things that are pure and honorable and true and right and lovely, to place our hearts and minds on you and your spiritual things. Lord, thank you for your son. Thank you for this family that you have created. And Lord, it melts our hearts to hear Jesus tell us that we are his family. As we heard this morning, we who are sinners, enemies, outcasts, who are weak. You have brought in and called us to be family. Thank you, Lord. And Lord, help us to live as the family that you have called us to be. Help us to be connected. 
Help us to love one another. Help us to serve one another. Help us to put the interests of each other ahead of our own. And help us to spur each other to love and good deeds as we see the day approaching to be in eternity with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Sing an invitation song. We want you to come to Jesus today. Don't let the opportunity go away to belong to the family. Don't let it slip away from this moment to have that heart purged for sin and replace it with a love and devotion for Jesus Christ who came to this world, died for your sins, desiring for you to be saved so that you could have eternity with him. Can we help you do that this morning? Just let us know. Talk to us afterward or come forward now while we stand and while we sing.